time is running out for Pakistan's economy. Inflation is at a 50-year high and food has become unaffordable for millions. The economy is in the ICU. The rupee sinking to record lows against the dollar. The politicians are at war and the people are crying for help. The impact is proving deadly. Inflation in Pakistan has risen to a record of over 36%, steeply pushing up the cost of living for its 220 million people. A litre of milk costs 200 rupees and petrol prices have nearly doubled in a year to 280 rupees a litre. To get a sense of how the situation is on the ground, I reached out to my journalist friends in Pakistan and this is what they shared with me. पॉलिटिकल अनसर्टेनिटी तो काफी टाइम से है एक तरफ पीडीएम जोर लगा रही है कि ये सारा कुछ पीटीआई की तरफ से है और पीटीआई वाले कोशिश कर रहे हैं कि ये सारा कुछ पीडीएम की वजह से है सबसे ज्यादा तो पेट्रोल हम देखते हैं कि तीन सौ रूपए का पेट्रोल हो गया है जो डेली वेजेस वाले बाइकर है या डिलीवरी बॉय से तो उनकी इनकम पे काफी हिट पड़ी है मैं खुद गवर्नमेंट मुलाजिम हूँ पार्ट टाइम दूसरा जॉब कर रहा हूँ लेकिन मेरा घर का खर्चा मुश्किल से पूरा हो जाता है खाने पीने की चीजें इतनी महंगी हो चुकी हैं। सिर्फ ऐसा लगता है कि काम भी जाना ऐसा है कि बस एक महीने महीने का जो है राशन किराया और आने जाने का जो है बस वही पूरा हो सकता है इट इज नॉट सरप्राइजिंग दैट वर्ल्ड बैंक है फाइनेंशियल ईयर ट्वेंटी To make matters worse, the government's balance sheet is imploding. Pakistani rupee has devalued by half. It now takes 280 Pakistani rupees for 1 US dollar. This has significantly shrunk the country's foreign exchange reserves. Today, Pakistan has over 4 billion dollars left in its coffers. That is just enough to cover a month more of imports. The country is expecting the IMF to release a bailout package of over 1 billion dollars but that looks evasive. For someone whose father migrated from Pakistan during the 1947 partition, it makes me sad to see the state of affairs of the country of my ancestors. But this economic crisis has been in the making for quite some time with bad politics at its roots. As they say, misfortunes never come alone. Populist measures, the COVID-19 pandemic, the devastating floods and the rising global inflation in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine conflict all have played a role. The arrest of Imran Khan, Pakistan's former prime minister, became the latest flashpoint, plunging the country into chaos. While Khan is out on bail, the country and its economy remain in a flux. This uncertainty raises several questions. Will the country default on its external borrowings? Why is the IMF playing hard this time around to bail out Pakistan? What happens if the political situation worsens? And is there any hope for Pakistan's aam janta? And what does all this mean to India? To probe these issues, I speak to Pakistan's noted economist Dr S Akbar Zaidi from Karachi journalist Shabbas Rana from Islamabad 
and ET's in-house geopolitical expert Pranab Dal Samanta. It's Tuesday, May 23rd. From the Economic Times, I'm Kiran Somwanchi and today on The Morning Brief, you are listening to Pakistan, a basket case of how bad politics ruins an economy. Most of us have known Pakistan to be a debt-ridden economy that struggles to make ends meet and often has to seek IMF bailouts. But the current economic crisis is unprecedented. Pakistan is facing a real danger of default. It has to repay $4 billion by the end of next month. In fact, over the next three years, Pakistan needs to repay $77.5 billion in external debt largely to China, Saudi Arabia, and private creditors. For a $350 billion economy, this is basically a debt spiral. Dr. Zaidi, who has taught at Columbia and John Hopkins Universities and is now the Executive Director of the Institute of Business Administration in Karachi, walks us through the background of the current crisis. For the last 10, 15 years, there hasn't been any substantive structural reform in Pakistan's economy. But in the last four years, actually 2018, is a, a good time to start to see how things have become particularly bad and how they've unraveled. So 2018, in fact, August 2018 is when Imran Khan was brought into power. It was very clear in 2018 that whoever won the election, whether it be Nawaz Sharif's PMLN or Imran Khan's PTI, Mm. whoever came into power would have to go to the IMF, no matter what, because Pakistan's economy was not doing well. There was a possibility of foreign exchange crisis occurring. But Imran Khan said, no, I will not go to the IMF. In fact, Imran Khan had once said that I would rather commit suicide than take more debt and loans from international organizations. So, you know, he didn't commit suicide. But because Pakistan did not go to the IMF, the economy started to get much worse. Had Nawaz Sharif's party won, they would have definitely gone to the IMF. Mm. But Imran Khan, he made it an issue of the ego. Then what happened was that in May 2019, the Imran Khan government fired its finance minister and brought in another guy from the World Bank. And he... Uh, went to the IMF and they got an agreement with the IMF. So this was Pakistan's 22nd agreement with the IMF. And I think that Pakistan has the largest number of agreements with the IMF compared to any country, even Argentina or other countries as well. So eventually they did go to the IMF, despite saying that they won't. There was no chance. They were just trying to be very, you know, macho about it. And by that time, the economy had become much worse. When the IMF comes in. It's a very structured austerity program where the economy has to be slowed down, interest rates have to go up, devaluation takes place. Then what happened was that COVID hit. And COVID was a huge blessing for the economy for Imran Khan. And the reason for that is that the IMF told Imran Khan's government that Mm. because of COVID, we are relaxing our conditions on you. We are not going to impose fiscal constraint. And they gave more money 
This was a $6.6 billion loan that the Pakistan government got in May, June 2019. And they said, okay, we are freezing the program. And they gave some further assistance in COVID to help Pakistan's economy. And they released their controls on the economy because of COVID. And after COVID ended, there was what was called a V-shaped recovery, which happened in almost every country, that suddenly pent-up demand and supply started moving, the economy opened up. So there was a lot of growth. In fact, in 2021, the growth rate was about 6%, which is the highest in many, many years in Imran Khan's government. Mm. Then what happened was that Pakistan's economy and its imports, its foreign exchange, could not handle 6% growth rate. Because when the growth rate rises, imports rise, you know, exports take time, but immediately there's, because you need to import, Pakistan is highly dependent on oil, food oil, palm oil, as well as petroleum. So you have to import that and then other machinery and stuff. There was a supply side problem globally, prices started going up. So then the foreign exchange crisis began and Pakistan started you know, running out of foreign exchange, it had to devalue. And Imran Khan, again, changed another finance minister. Hmm. So in the four years that he was in power, there were three finance ministers. So that's also not good for the economy. It was very clear that his government was going to be, you know, asked to be removed or removed through the parliamentary process. And by November, December, his confrontation with the Pakistan army, with the previous army chief had become public over appointments and and the future army chief and so on and so forth. And just before, this is February, just before the vote of confidence taking place, he did something which was absolutely crazy. He said that the Pakistan government is going to ensure that it is not going to raise petroleum prices till June. That's when the budget cycle starts. At this time, the Ukraine war had started. Russia had invaded Ukraine. And Hmm. all global prices had gone up. And here is a populist prime minister trying to say that we're not going to raise prices because the elections were coming. But then he was removed from power uh, through the vote of no confidence. When he was removed, the Shabazz Sharif government, the present prime minister, appointed one finance minister. So in this Hmm. time, because of COVID and other things, the IMF had seized this program. It had said that We are not going to give you any loans because you have not taken any reforms. So when this new finance minister called Dr. Mifta Ismail, when he came, there was a lot of infighting in Shabazz Sharif's party. So he went to the IMF, started talking to them, started thinking of revitalizing the program. But he was also removed through intrigues and infighting in his party. And now the current finance minister, Mr. Ishaq Dar, who was in exile in England, came and took over. So that's five finance ministers in less than five years. And now the current finance minister of the ruling government has his own challenges to face. Shabbas Rana, one of the leading economic journalists in Pakistan working with the Express Media Group, tells me this. The new government came in, it took about 45 days to just withdraw those subsidies. And then this government initially, during its first six months, it took certain decisions which were needed, like withdrawing all those subsidies, increasing the electricity tariffs, letting the rupee gain its at market value, and other such difficult decisions. But when this government saw that because of those harsh economic decisions, its popularity was fast eroding, it stopped taking those tough decisions. 
And now where we are standing today, still uh, $2.6 billion out of $6.5 billion remain undisbursed because we are not able to meet the condition. So given the scenario, it looks like the IMF bailout seems to be quite important. But uh, is it happening and what is the sense there? Pakistan's gross external financing requirements for the next financial year are estimated in the range of 32 to 35 billion dollars. These include a big chunk of money, like maybe in the range of 20 billion dollars, just to repay some of previous loans and um, to finance the current account deficit. And this, in my view, cannot be achieved without an active umbrella of the IMF. The program is going to end on June 30th. Another extension in the program is not possible because we have already taken a nine-month extension back in September 22, which right now, government seems indecisive whether to go into another IMF program or let it expire and the next government should negotiate the new package. Whosoever negotiates with the IMF, either it is this government, the caretakers, or the new government coming into power after uh, the upcoming National Assembly elections, they will have to take tough decisions. So the importance of the IMF remains in case of Pakistan for at least next two to three years. But were the IMF conditions so stringent that Pakistan is facing a hard time abiding by them? The set of conditions that IMF is imposing on Pakistan will never help to achieve the objectives that those policies intend to achieve, like increasing the electricity tariffs. It has adversely impacted every household in Pakistan. The cost of electricity has more than doubled in past four years. And still, the difference between the cost of generation and the price that the government pays to these power generation companies we are unable to pay. It is about rupees 2.6 trillion. So this is despite the fact, massive increase in power tariffs and huge subsidies running into trillions of rupees have been given. Since the recipe was wrong, incorrect, the results were not as per the desire of the IMF. Same is the case uh, with the interest rates. Uh, at the start of the IMF program, the interest rates were around 10%. Now, the interest rates are 21%. It's a big, big question. More than double increase in the interest rate in the past four years. The cost of industry has massively increased. But as we know, these measures didn't contain the inflation. Still, we have in fact 6.4% inflation rate in April, which is kind of 60 years highest rate in Pakistan. So this crippled uh, Pakistan's industrial sector. Same is the case with our exchange rate. We have been devaluing the currency, but we are not able to achieve the desired results. Instead of that, since Pakistan imports most of the goods from abroad, the devaluation of about 56% in past one year alone has massively increased the cost of everything in Pakistan. So every household in Pakistan is today affected because of the IMF program and conditionalities attached to the program. So why is IMF playing so hard? There was a humanitarian crisis like the floods. Before that, there was COVID. So IMF is aware of all that. So why push it so hard? If you look at the American foreign policy, America is now out to contain China. And Pakistan is being considered very important in this play. Because of that factor, Pakistan has to take certain foreign policy choices, which it is not willing to take, obviously because they are very deep and cordial strategic relations with China. It is believed in Pakistan that the IMF is being used as a tool of Pentagon and the State Department of the U.S. Because of that factor, IMF keeps changing its demands, keeps increasing its demands to Pakistan, like increasing the requirement for arranging 
additional loans and things like that. So this is the political part. Caught in the crossfires of the political and economic issues are the people of Pakistan. The existence of a sizable parallel informal economy also makes it difficult to assess the actual impact on them. So one thing about Pakistan's economy is that there is something called a grey economy. It's not only corruption. It's hmm. not only black money. It's also hmm. tax evasion, tax exemptions, cash economy and uh, remittances which come in through non-formal mechanisms. So there's a huge informal economy in Pakistan. And all our numbers of our growth rates and our economy are underreported because of the size of the informal economy. We don't have numbers and data about how many children have been taken out of school, for example. There's anecdotal evidence that people eating different low-quality, poor food. There's anecdotal evidence that people are not spending money where they ought to. For example, on Eid celebrations just a few weeks ago, very few people went to buy things because it was very expensive. A number of industries have had to close down, which means that yeah, people are being laid off. People are not getting jobs. The economy growth rate is 0.1 or 2 or 3 percent. So there is an element of more destitution, for sure poverty, unemployment. And people manage to survive through safety net, support. But obviously, it's a very difficult situation for a lot of people. The international ratings agency Moody's has warned that Pakistan could default in the absence of an IMF bailout. The country's financing options beyond June are highly uncertain. The IMF warns Pakistan to obtain external financing commitments from friendly countries before it can release the bailout funds of $1.1 billion. So the current ruling government has six weeks to get its act together for the IMF to oblige. But what does all this mean for us in India? To understand the implications of an imploding Pakistan, I turn to my colleague and ET's Associate Executive Editor Pranab Dal Samanta. What does Pakistan's worsening economic situation mean to India? If you look at the economic situation, it's been getting worse since COVID. Mm -hmm. Pakistan has really not recovered. And this is a case with a lot of economies who have taken large Chinese loans and things like that. Uh, so that sort of accelerated in a different direction because of the political crisis which has gathered steam with uh, Imran Khan somehow capturing the imagination of the young people and a large section of the people precisely because of the public anger arising from the worsening economic situation. So together, you have a situation now of total turmoil where the political authority is weak and the economic situation is not looking up. And therefore, the crisis can very easily go into chaos and anarchy Anything of that sort in our neighborhood is not good, especially if it is in Pakistan. Given that in such situation, right-wing Islamic fundamentalists historically find space when such situation emerges, and that could lead to a whole new economy of violence, which will be not a good situation for us. So what has been the Indian government's foreign policy approach towards Pakistan, given its whole economic and political crisis? I think... 
compared to previous governments, this government has had a standoffish approach towards Pakistan, precisely from the learnings of previous approaches. All approaches to make peace with Pakistan have led to some other domestic element within Pakistan sabotaging that effort. Unlike other neighbors, Pakistan has been always reluctant to join the India economic story because of the uh, Chinese sort of integration with Pakistan and the strategic alliance with China. It has gravitated more towards China and less towards India. And Pakistan remained divided on that through these years. And now there is absolutely no momentum given the crisis domestically in Pakistan. So India will just have to wait and watch and make sure it doesn't become an issue within Pakistan. The military has always tried to sort of make India the domestic issue through Kashmir. We don't want to get embroiled in their domestic politics. Pakistan should neither unite nor polarize on an India issue. So best is to stay away but guard our borders and be very much on the vigil. But do you think, given the weaker economic situation at a time when India is really, you know, looking like the oasis in the whole South Asian region, do you think Pakistan's stance towards India may change or soften now? Which Pakistan are you talking about? <laughs> you know, there is a Pakistan which is a political Pakistan. The civilian government over there is Nam Kawaste at the moment. You have Imran Khan who has popular appeal. You have the army who has a different vision. And then don't forget all those right-wing terror groups who are now controlling large parts of Fatah bordering Afghanistan and that Pakistan Taliban's imprint is getting larger. So which Pakistan are we talking about? True. See, that's the whole issue. There is no one consolidated political authority with whom you can talk and do business with. Coming to China, you know, for China, how important is an economically weak Pakistan uh, as a strategic partner in the South Asian region? See, an economically weak any country is not a good situation, particularly if that gives space to terror organizations. Remember, China had had to close down one of its consulates because there were some attacks by some groups or threats. China's ploy until now and still remains to be invested in the Pakistan military and its military leadership and through them do the CPEC and other kinds of projects which have through which money has rolled out into uh, Pakistan. So its best bet will be to somehow find a way through which the military can restore its primacy in Pakistan politics and not enter into a situation where the military will have to roll down the tanks to bring down these protests because that could lead into an ugly confrontation with, say, something like the Pakistan Taliban and others. That will go towards civil war. So it's a situation of flux where the Chinese are counting that the Pakistan military will restore its primacy but it's a situation of flux, really. I'm just curious, you know, Imran Khan's economic uh, track record has not been anything exceptionally or out of the blue. But what then explains his popularity? I think when there is public anger, they just look for a rallying point. We have seen this in our country also. You know, we've seen in a small case, Arvind Kejriwal was nobody in politics. But when there was public anger of some sort, they found a rallying point the Arab Spring. So this is a manifestation of public anger. And somebody turns up as a rallying point and Imran Khan is there. And uh, it's quite possible he comes to power and within a year people go against him as well. It's happened in many of the Arab countries. So that's the nature of politics. And, and given the crisis at hand, 
a lot of young people, unemployed, angry, and in the history of many countries, you see these moments, they just rally around anyone. Pakistan is probably in a much worse situation than what India was way back in 1991 when our foreign reserves were just enough to cover three weeks of our imports. But that crisis prompted India's policymakers to liberalize the economy, bring in the much-hailed reforms, and since then, there has been no looking back for us. But the same fate may not await Pakistan since there are no quick-fix solutions in sight. Pakistan's economy is facing stagflation. It's a period of high inflation, coupled with unemployment and low demand. And there is political uncertainty and infighting, leading to a volatile law and order situation. And if and when elections are held, it will be difficult to predict whether the new government will indeed take the right measures to get the economy back on track. Meanwhile, the country has been seeing an exodus. Last year, over 8 lakh Pakistanis left their country to take up jobs abroad. But the larger question is about the efficacy of IMF's bailout programs. Even after 22 bailout packages, if Pakistan's economy hasn't become self-sustaining, it says a lot about IMF's role as a lender of last resort. IMF's lending conditions are often criticized for being too tough on the country's poor and are occasionally influenced by the changing geopolitics. Besides, austerity measures cannot be the one-size-fits-all solution. When you reduce government spending and increase taxation, it hurts growth and triggers social unrest, especially in fragile democracies. Maybe it's time the IMF rethinks its lending program. So that's it for today. I'm Kiran Somanshi from The Economic Times. You are listening to Pakistan, a basket case of how bad politics ruins an economy. Only on The Morning Brief. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. S. Akbar Zaidi, Shabas Rana and Pranab Dal Samanta for sharing their amazing insights. And thank you for listening in. This episode was brought to you by sound editor Rajas Nayak and producer Vinay Joshi. Executive producers Anupriya Nair, Anirban Chaudhary and Arijit Burman. Hope you found this episode informative. Don't forget to tune in to a new episode of the Morning Brief podcast every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. It streams on Amazon Prime Music, Geo Savan, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. And of course, ET's own audio platform, ET Play. Have a great day ahead. All clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits are mentioned in the description. Listener.